when I was growing up, we had Friday night and Saturday night fish fries to raise money to bury people. The fact that because he was a slave and then a sharecropper, he was part of that environment where you're raising money to help people bury a loved one. And thus the insurance company comes into play, right? <laughs> I have an insurance. Now people can buy a risk product so that now their loved ones can transition with dignity, right? Is what can happen here. Now, fast forward from 1900s to 2021, the Friday night, Saturday night fish fries is now crowdfunding. When you talk about wealth and what you've been doing, you know, and, 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 and speaking about wealth, the 2021 crowdfunding on a technology underbelly, sitting on a technology underbelly here, you are dependent on the kindness of strangers to come by with an electronic pacifier, I call it the mobile phone electronic pacifier, right? Read the story and hopefully donate. What's the difference? None. Meet Roosevelt Giles. Today, he's president and CEO of Atlanta Life Insurance in an alum of AT&T where he built network protocols for the likes of the Pentagon. But growing up, he and his nine siblings faced a very distinct reality, picking cotton alongside his sharecropper parents. Eventually, they paid off the family's debt and managed to get an education. As fate would have it, the company Giles runs, Atlanta Life, was founded by a former slave, Alonzo Erndon, who built one of America's first successful black businesses. But an issue he saw then that Giles still sees today, it is expensive to be poor and black. I'm your host, Leon Alfaro, and on today's episode of Moneda Moves, we talk about Giles' journey to becoming a leader in technology and his ideas to rebuild Black Wall Street. Also in this episode, we talk about the kinds of responsibilities corporate companies must answer to as it relates to people of color in a post-pandemic world. No te lo quieres perder. Joining us today on Moneda Moves is Roosevelt Giles. Now, Roosevelt has a very interesting history with more than two decades of experience in management, strategic and operational problem solving and complex operations and business transformation across finance, insurance, manufacturing, automotive, healthcare, and technology. But he has a very interesting background as well, having come from sharecropper parents and having worked his way into this software design into places like AT&T and now as president and CEO of Atlanta Life Insurance. So thank you so much for joining us today, Roosevelt. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you. Now, I'd love to learn, start by learning a little bit more about your background and growing up. Um, how did you arrive at flipping houses and building protocols um, for through AT&T for the Pentagon and Special Forces, um, but also talk to us about growing up. Now, now I read an article from you in Forbes where you talked about going to school. Even even that was a challenge because you had pressing responsibilities at home as you had sharecropper parents. Right. Yeah. When you look at uh, you know when when 
when people when uh, slaves were emancipated, all right, they pretty much had no skills, didn't know where to go and things. So they went into what we call today strategic partnerships with the plantation owners as sharecroppers. And what that meant was the fact that you were allocated a, a uh, given number of acres of land and you went into partnership with the plantation owner to plant crops and share in the profits, all right? It's what you did. So that therefore you can get, see the fruits of your labor, all right? It's what you can do. And most of these, these plantations had, they had stores, you know, where, where the, you know, you buy your seeds and your fertilizers, clothes, you bought food and all of these things. And so going into partnership with the former uh, slave owners, they in turn, you, you charged on credit all of your food, all of your clothes, all of your seeds, all of your fertilizer for the number of acres that you were going to be sharecropping with. And so when it was time to harvest the crops and everything and to determine whether or not you made a profit, generally you did not. And that was a means in which the plantation owners were able to keep slaves as indentured servants. It's what they were able to do and not call them slaves, but they were partners. And uh, that was a very, very difficult life. I'm one of 10 kids, eight girls of two and two boys. I'm number nine in the bunch. And so my parents were illiterate. And so basically our parents stated to us that the, you need to get an education because with an education, they can take everything else away from you, but they cannot take what sits between your ears. It's what you cannot do. And so therefore we focused a lot on education and Again, my parents were, were illiterate, they couldn't read and write, but my sisters, you know, they helped us, we helped each other, all right, with our homework and things there. But, but during that environment, you only got to go to school when it rained because you had to pick cotton. And, wow. so, and so therefore you prayed for rain, <laughs> all right? It's, it's what you did. And the teachers would send homework, would send the, the homework to you and things there. So you can, you know, sort of somewhat sort of, you know, stay at parity with the, uh, with the other kids there. But, uh, you know, that was the life. And, and when you look at uh, the 10 of us, eight of us went on to college and we all went to all the college on scholarships. All right. It's what we did. So, so again, going back to, you know, kudos to our parents for, you know, you know, enforcing the rules that uh, you, 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 you are going to learn and education is your ticket out. Wow. Incredible. So first of all, there's just so much to take in here. The fact that you prayed for rain quite literally to go to school, it was a privilege, a quite literal privilege, but also a stroke of luck to be able to go to school. Did it rain often or, or when, when did it rain? Not that often, not that often, unfortunately. Oh boy. So, so how did you, I mean, clearly, clearly you, you, you were able to find a way to get ahead. How did you, um, kind of try to stay on parity with class or otherwise try to keep up with the rest of the class? You know, when, you know, when I, when I, when I, when I think back on that today and, and, you know, we're just coming out of, you know, the height of COVID and all of the homeschooling, you know, you know, and all of that. And, and basically that's what we were doing. And that's what most black people were doing, okay, who were sharecroppers that could not go to school, you know, there until it rained. So we had 
the, the teachers who wanted us to learn was send our homework home, bring it by the house there, et cetera. And the, the, the more senior you know, siblings would help you with your, your, uh, your studies and things and give you your assignments and things along those lines and, and you go and, and, uh, you know, and, and pass those assignments in. So that, I guess that was the earlier version of, home, of homeschooling, <laughs> you know, that's what it was. When I contrast, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, like several months ago. I said, you know, this is interesting that uh, when we were growing up, you know, this was, uh, <laughs> we couldn't go because of, we're in the fields working, but yet uh, keeping, keeping abreast of, uh, you know, our studies and things there. So it's, you know, quite striking when you look at then and now, right? <laughs> Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's a whole, whole new world. So when was your first, um, beyond helping your parents with their sharecropping duties, when was your first job and how did you kind of make those series of steps that eventually landed you in the world, in worlds like tech, in world in worlds like health, <laughs> you, you have a myriad of, of, of different yeah. kinds of experience from, from health to automotive, to manufacturing, to insurance. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, I was one of these who was always inquisitive and I could fix things. I could tear down engines and, you know, put them back together and things. I could fix cars. I could, you know, rebuild engines, transmissions and things. And when you and when you work on a farm, when you live on a farm, you have to do a lot of these things, you know, because you don't have money to go and get repaired, things repaired. So you learn from your parents, you learn from your uncles and aunts and friends, your village, you got a village, okay? That's one of the things that uh, I think that I can attribute to where I am today by having that village, all right? And you, we were all poor, you know, is what we were, but we, we took lemon and made lemonade, all right? There's what happened. And, and so, you know, having that, having that as the base and understanding that education is your ticket out, all right? It's what that is. And so failure was not an option. All right. And so the I was also very good in math. All right. And my dad, who was illiterate, had a memory like an elephant and new numbers. You give him a number a week later, he can tell you that number just off the top of his head. All right. It's what he could do. Uh, a lot of my siblings in the sciences. All right. In the medical and things, sciences and teachers. And so I like numbers. I like math. And that in turn helped me when I went to school there for computer science and business. All right. And so that put me on my, my trajectory. The other thing too, is that I, uh, I got a part-time job working as a computer operator. Okay. It's what I got working for Millican and company. And from that job as a computer operator, that's when I got in, got introduced to technology. All right. It's what happened. And because I was then I went to University of South Carolina and, and I was majoring in computer science and business. And so I started shifting into the programming side. All right, it's what I started doing. Well, the mentor, this white guy, the name was uh, Rick Streiser. And Rick gave me a tremendous opportunity uh, in giving me that, that, that job, that part-time job is what he did. And also too mentored me into the programming arena. And, and that's how I learned it and in my education and things there. And so, and that's what prepared me into the, uh, into the tech space. 
Fascinating. So uh, all just see seeing and seeking failure as not an option, trying all your doors, obviously pursuing education. I think what you said um, really stuck with me about the, the, the thing you had the biggest ownership of was the thing between your ears, your brain, right. And, and having, gaining that education and that being your ticket out. Um, I think that resonates a lot. Um, now today you are president and CEO of Atlanta life insurance, which has a history of its own. The founder Alonzo Franklin earned has a a history himself because he, he was a slave himself. And it's so, it's so, I think it's so symbolic that obviously, you know, you had an experience with sharecropping parents, which you liken as not too separate from slavery because it's still um, very much tied, um, right? Um, you don't have your, your really your independence fully um, and you're, it's hard to make a profit, as you said. Um, so could you walk us through a little bit of the founder story and what drew you to this company as a company that you, you figured you might want to lead? In 1905, Alonzo Herndon started an investment and insurance company to service black Atlantans. It became one of the most successful black-owned businesses in the country. The Herndon home in northwest Atlanta tells the remarkable story of Alonzo Herndon, a Walton County man who went from slave to sharecropper to barber to Atlanta's first black millionaire. I was, I was introduced to Atlanta Life with a, uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Edward Irons. And uh, Dr. Edward Irons was the first uh, black to get a PhD in finance at Harvard in 1956. And so he was affiliated with Atlanta Life and he brought me onto the board because of my business and technology background. When I got into the company and, and started to look and read about the history, because a lot of things I had no idea about, I was fascinated. I mean, absolutely fascinated that here it is, a man, Alonzo Herndon only had three months of formal education, being a slave, all right? His mom was black, his father, plantation owner, all right? And so starting a financial services, highly regulated company with only three months of formal education was a testament to perseverance, all right? It's what it was. And I cannot even imagine what, you know, his thoughts in venturing into this venture. But prior to that, you know, he had one of the original hustles, which was selling peanuts and molasses on the side of the road, going into barbering, and then real estate. And, uh, and, and, and one of the things in doing that, when Slaves were emancipated and also they got tired of being sharecroppers. Then what they did, they started to migrate to cities. And so, and what he saw was the fact that people coming being from sharecropping need to have a decent place to live. And so he saw that opportunity in providing, uh, you know, property and apartments and homes so that these individuals can have a decent place to live. That's what he did. So he invested heavily in real estate and of course, then he had a an insurance company. Then I've got a captive audience. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a captive audience. You know, you're renting, you're renting, uh, you're renting your home, your home and things for me. And now I can cover off some of the risk. And and this is the other thing that was so unique. When I was growing up, we had Friday night and Saturday night fish fries to raise money to bury people. 
okay, when people transition, oh, wow. all right? And so now when you, and so he's, you know, the fact that because he was a slave and then a sharecropper, he was part of that environment where you're raising money to help people bury a loved one. And thus the insurance company comes into play, right? <laughs> By having insurance, now people can buy a risk product so that now their loved ones can transition it with dignity, all right? Mm -hmm. It's what can happen here. Now, fast forward from 1900s to 2021, June 15th, 16th, no, dates, what day? 17th, <laughs> 17th. The Friday night, Saturday night fish fries is now crowdfunding. <laughs> Wow. Incredible. I mean, <laughs> they're the same thing, right? They're the same, same thing, thing, but exactly. the same thing. Exactly. Just I was growing up, we had Friday night and Saturday night fish fries to raise money to bury people. Okay. When people train. Oh, wow. All right. And so now when you, and so he's, you know, the fact that because he was a slave and then a sharecropper, he was part of that environment where you're raising money to help people bury a loved one. And thus the insurance company comes into play, right? <laughs> By having insurance, now people can buy a risk product so that now their loved ones can transition it with dignity, all right? Mm -hmm. It's what can happen here. Now, fast forward from 1900s to 2021, June 15th. 16th, no, dates, what day? 17th, <laughs> 17th. The Friday night, Saturday night fish fries is now crowdfunding. <laughs> wow, incredible. I mean, <laughs> they're the same thing, right? They're the same, same thing, thing, but exactly. the same thing, exactly. just. I'm having to go and put up a crowdfunding site to transition my loved one because I don't have the financial wherewithal okay, to have them transition with dignity. And being in the insurance business here, right now, there's over 60 million people in the US that don't have life insurance. Think about that for a moment. Think about the burden on the families. Think about the impact on those families financially, that that loved one, that breadwinner, that one income household, lose that person, they're constantly resetting, constantly resetting. So how can I move up the economic ladder when I'm constantly having to reboot, okay? And go from step number six back down to zero. Right. Okay, right. It's, what I'm it's, what I'm, it's what I'm having to do here. And just, just not right, all right? It's what it's not. And so we have to fix this. And one of the things, again, when I said the fact that I've been very blessed to to travel to 137 countries and I wasn't in the military. And this was on business and of course uh, holidays. When you look at in the world today, the UN recognizes about 195 countries, okay? Out of that 195 countries, there's about 112, 13 that have a constitution, written constitution. Out of that 112, 13, how many have the word we in it? One, we the people. We the people 
is broken. It has always been broken for people of color. Now it's broken for everybody. And if we don't fix that, we are all doomed. Because we cannot have 2021 millions of people using crowdfunding, okay, to transition a loved one. Now, what is the undertow around that? There's no future wealth being created. There is zero right. wealth being created. Right. There's no money for it. There's no money for, for education. There's no money for starting a business. There's no money for maintaining and being able to keep the house, being able to keep the car, being able to have savings, being able to, you know, to, to afford rent. Okay. That's the problem. I think you're you're, you're bringing up something so important here. And that's that, it, especially in this country, wealth continues to beget wealth. And unfortunately, that also means that that space um, is definitely widening between the super wealthy and the people who, like you said, are having to reset um, every time that they bury a loved one, anytime that an accident happens and someone is uninsured otherwise, um, in terms of health, in terms of life happens, and it's it's expensive to be poor. Yes, yes, it's expensive right. to be poor. Um, and so this leads very well into my next question for you, which is about... Um, you know, one, one, one of your big topics is about uh, the rebuilding of Black Wall Street. And I want to touch on that in a second. But at first, I want to talk about this racial wealth gap, which you brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about the racial wealth gap, what are the most, when you say we need to fix it, you, you mentioned corporate companies, but w- who are the big players um, that need to be involved Uh how do corporate companies get involved and how much does policy come into play too? Because that kind of sets us up for the infrastructure of how much we can achieve, right? With, within this capitalist system. Right. You know, when, when you look at it, it's, everybody has to be a part of this. Okay. And, uh, you know, corporations, number one, have to become just companies. What do I mean by just companies? They have to be, they have to have parity with their, all of their stakeholders. They have to have pay equity. They have to have gender equity. They have to have diversity, all right? It's what they have to have. They have to have fairness in their procurement opportunities and things so that, you know, people of color businesses can get procurement contracts so that they can in turn hire people in the communities and things and help those communities, help those communities grow. You know, when you look at the fact of, of companies that are, have not, you know, chimed the bar yet, on 15 and $20 base on the hourly wage. Well, it's, you can't do anything on $7 and some change, okay, minimum. You can absolutely do nothing, all right, with that. And, and, and so, and going back to my, my thing earlier, the fact that companies are so quick to talk about emerging, emerging markets, <laughs> so quick to talk about emerging markets when you have one right under your nose. <laughs> All right. It's Growing in every sense of the word. <laughs> you had it right under your nose, you know, you know, you know, there from that perspective. And so I think, uh, you know, from a corporation standpoint, being able to take care of those things. All right. And pay people for the job that they're doing. So you do get eliminate those disparities. The other part of that is that the people of color have to understand and do business with each other. All right, it's what they have to do. 
they have to promote each other, they have to support each other, and they have to also fund each other. All right, is what has to happen. They have to, you know, you look at all of these huge mega churches, right? You know, you take, you take the, the, the amount of money that flows mm -hmm. to these mega churches and think about if they were to build a much smaller church <laughs> and take the dollars that they spend on the maintenance of those mega churches and invest those dollars in the local businesses, communities that attend those churches, look at how the local communities can survive, okay, and thrive. As an example, in Atlanta, on the south side of town, there are no major shops, all right? No major office distribution, no major you know, satellite offices, corporate headquarters, nothing. So if I'm living on the south side of town of Atlanta, I'm commuting to the north side of town, all right? And let's play this out. I'm commuting to the north side of town. At lunch, I walk out to the shop. I buy you know, a pair of pants, I buy a suit, I buy whatever. I buy there, come back. When I get ready to leave, I walk, go over to the corner grocery store, there where I work, pick up my groceries, then I drive home, all right? So think about what I have deprived my local community of. I can't have, okay, a apparel shops in my local community. I can't have grocery stores in Michael. That creates what? Food deserts, all right? That's what it creates. Because right. there is no commerce in my community during the day because everyone is on the other side of town, <laughs> all right? It's where they are. And so therefore businesses can't thrive. It's what they cannot do. So what companies can do by leveling the procurement field and putting satellite offices in these communities, people, communities of color, then you can have local businesses to grow out of that and people can walk out of the offices and go to, you know, have lunch, go to dinner, shops, foods, et cetera. And you grow in these communities. So you have parity in these communities. When you look at white communities, they have all of this stuff, all right? They have all of the stores. They have all of the buildings. They have all of the satellite offices and what they have. But, but we don't have, have that investment in communities. And you don't have dollars. that investment. And so what these what companies can do is that they can put satellite offices in these communities, and guess what you're also doing? You're cutting down my commute time. You're cutting down my, my, my commute time is what you're also doing, and that has a direct impact on my wallet, my financial well-being, all right? It's what it has. The other thing that, uh, that companies need to look, do, companies need to also invest in childcare, okay? So that therefore, I know I can afford childcare, all right? to subsidize that, all right? And by doing that and putting these satellite offices in these communities of color, now all boats of any shape float. It doesn't have to be a headquarters building. It can be a satellite office. And now you can employ people from the community and I'm, and I'm reducing their commute times is what I'm reducing, all right? And I have parity from the standpoint of, of, of income. And now these communities build. Now I don't have to have food, you know, food deserts. I don't have medical deserts and things because you've got commerce activity. <laughs> and you don't have, when you go across the country, you don't have that. And this is the other thing. My brother, my only brother, uh, succumbed to lung cancer in 2013, in November of 2013. You know, I would only do a 10K or 5K race, you know, just to do something. And he was in hospice. And I did a 10, I did a 10K and I came back and told him that I did this for you. 
James and things. And later that night, he said, Roosevelt, I want you to run a marathon in all 50 states and all seven continents, and I'll be with you. He transitioned three days later. Huh. I ran my first marathon in January of 14. And I finished the 50 states December 7th. So I ran a marathon in all 50 states in one year. Okay. And, and this is the point that I'm trying to make here. I have run the 50 states now three times in three different cities in each state. So I have seen the infrastructure in the United States is what I have witnessed. I have also witnessed communities across this country. And I know firsthand what it would mean to these communities having satellite offices in these communities and how those can build these local economies. And again, this is not cracking atoms here, right? <laughs> this is mm -hmm. real simple. Putting up satellite offices, hiring people locally, cutting down my commute in time. And now these communities can build, they can thrive. They can flourish. They can flourish is what they can go about doing. It's simple, it's not complex. No, and I, so in, in this view, corporations are part of the solution. They're part of the solution to help communities flourish, to help communities build wealth, and in, in fact, end up investing in them in themselves. Right. Not, not because people don't want to invest in their communities. It's just, as you said, right. right now, people get displaced from their communities. You have all this commute time. It also takes a dent on your wallet. Um, what is the, What are the conversations that are happening within the Black community, do you sense? Do you sense that people are hopeful that this is the kind of future that we'll get? Do you sense that within the last year when companies have expressed that they need to lean into social justice? Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a big movement, obviously, with the murder of George Floyd and Juneteenth last year uh, for companies to lean in. Do you get the sense that the Black community is, is leaning into that? Or do you get the sense that Black community is saying, we're going to put ourselves first and, and, and make those active decisions for those who can to invest in our community? How do you sense that happening? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. The, in, the, in, the, in the Black community, the Black community is, is, is having conversations around that we have to invest in ourselves, okay? But that's been deficits there as well and not investing in ourselves. And, and yes, we can hold corporations accountable you know, but I'm from the, the, you know, the old saying charity begins at home, you know, it's where it begins. And so by investing in ourselves and doing business with ourselves and things, that's also a first step. It's what that represents. But the other part, I feel that this time it is different. All right. Because again, growing up in, in the sixties and things there and, and uh, you know, the civil rights and all of those. Now what we're talking about it's economic rights. We're talking about economic voting rights now. It's what we're speaking to. And if you go back and you look at the history, Dr. King wasn't killed, assassinated for civil rights. He was assassinated for economic rights because he was killed once he shifted, once he made that shift, okay, onto the economic side, that's when he was taken out, all right? It's what happens, happened. And so now we have to work toward economic voting rights is what we have to have. And that comes from our wallet. 
that if companies are not going to do good by us, then why should we continue to buy their goods and services? So in the black community, the black community is now starting to look at from the standpoint of who, what companies are aligned with our interests, okay? What companies are aligned with our interests? And those are the companies that we will partner with. And one of the things too that no longer do you have to go and, and get a stick and, and some cardboard and, and, and write, you pick it in this company, walk in front of the headquarters. No, now you have digital activism, okay? With digital activism, I can now go and garner millions and millions of followers. And one of the things I tell people is this, in, this, in the world, you got about seven and a half billion plus people, right? Out of that seven and a half billion, you got about six billion with a smartphone. So that's phone, you are only 13 digits away from 7.5 billion people, 13 digits. So you have the power in this little device to influence millions of people. And digital activism is what corporations are starting to wake up to, all right? It's what is happening. And that's why I feel that things, this time it's gonna be different. The other part I feel like is what this thing, why it's gonna be different, because it's not, it's not a black cause now. It's a human cause. All right, we got all ethnicities from around the world all doing the exact same thing. And that's what gives me hope. And that's why I'm so excited about this now because I believe it's, it's going to change now. It's what's going to happen. And, and, and so, um, because all companies want to make money. <laughs> they do. Mm -hmm. they, want, they want to make money. And, and so, so that's a big question, right? Uh, the, 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 that companies say that it's... The, even companies acknowledge that this is a human issue, but um, people question whether that 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 capital um, forget what people call it sometimes, but it's the 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 do good capital whether that will actually register for companies. But you bring up a very good point, which is a tool of accountability, which is the power that consumers have oh my God. to to blow up on social media, to blow up on exactly. digital, and to hold these companies accountable. Exactly, exactly. And when you look at back to your point. A lot of companies right now have some beautifully Pulitzer Prize winning press releases on their website. I mean, just phenomenal. And when you look behind it, it's nothing but white space, empty, there's nothing. So a lot of companies got kudos for beautiful press releases, but there's no accountability. Think about it, if I'm a company and I come out and say, okay, I'm gonna spend $500 million on people of color and black causes and businesses and all of these things. So I get, so I get the kudos, all right, but coming out with all of the statement, but who holds me accountable? No one, no one. So if you go and you take a look at, and you go and do a search and you look at, you know, 10 or 15 of these companies. And when you go to their websites, there's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Because if you were doing something, guess what? You want to promote it. <laughs> you want to promote it. You want to highlight it. You want to put it out front. It's what you want to do. Because mm -hmm. the companies know there's no one that's going to hold them accountable, right? But what they also are seeing with talent management and talent shortages these days, the if you don't play ball, 
you're going to be left behind as a company because you're not going to attract the talent because talent today is not looking at just the compensation, the monetary compensation. They're looking at from the standpoint of what are you doing to make the world a better place? All right. right. What are we doing in society? All right. And, and so now you got this groundswell from the, the new talent that's coming in, the talent that's already in place. You got shareholders, you got stakeholders. And so now management and the board is being squeezed. <laughs> They've been squeezed, all right, from bottom to the top. And you got a lot of holdouts. And but that is going to change. And so that's what gives me a lot of uh, a lot of hope that things are going to things are going to change. No doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's growing pressures. Um, and, and that's that's really interesting to hear that perspective from your end, because it's certainly I, I think there's a few things that you mentioned that I, I hadn't heard before, which are all all valid. There's obviously the digital activism. There's obviously the choice of the consumer. There's the choice of the employee employee. And I think after the pandemic, we're seeing even more of that when you talk about satellite offices and we already see companies kind of moving towards a satellite office option. Um, so, so that opens the opportunity to have this kind of future that, that you propose that would bring. One, yeah. And let me, add, let, let me add this one thing here to it. And I, and I coined this words and I'm very proud of it. The, you know, everybody knows about cybersecurity, right? You know, cyber this, cyber that, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. and I make a lot of money with it, by the way, too, my companies. But <clears throat> when you look at cyber, you heard you, you hear about denial of service attack, a DOS attack, denial of service, all right? And companies spend billions of dollars on this stuff. Billions are spent on cyber. And when you look at it, go back to what we talked about. You got the digital activism. You got the you got the competition for talent, the talent that's already in the company. Am I going to stay? Am I going to leave? And you got your oldest stakeholders come beaming down on you, asking for you to change. And companies are at a huge risk right now for this attack. And what this attack is, is called a denial of revenue attack, a DOR. Denial of revenue. Because if I go and launch this attack with my electronic pacifier and I get five or six million people or 500,000 people that said, we're not buying company product A's product, and they look at those revenue project, those, that revenue for the quarter and see that precipitous drop in revenue, how do you safeguard against that? There's no insurance you can buy for it. There's no technology that you can use to, like you have on the cyber side, to help you buffer a denial of service attack, all right, so it doesn't take your system down. Companies are at risk. They are at risk of denial of revenue attacks if they do not incorporate the will of their customers and of the stakeholders. That definitely puts everything into perspective and, 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 and really it, it gives you, I feel like we're on a game show and we have, you have several options there. You're going to end up at the same fate, but you have a couple of options because you have these encroaching pressures. Um, no, no question about it. So think about this for a moment. If you're sitting on a board, right. And you're looking at your financials and our rep now numbers have dropped. Okay. Mm -hmm. From the previous quarters. How many quarters are you going to allow that to happen to and keep that CEO? How many, how long is that going to happen where the stakeholders, shareholders 
is going to keep that board. Okay. That's the problem that they're facing. That's why denial of revenue attacks is the biggest risk facing companies today. That's Huge. it. I mean, it, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's <laughs> everything else is background noise. <laughs> Roosevelt, I you I've learned so much from you, but that this was definitely the, the punchline of it all. Now I want to wrap um, with with one uh, question that's super important question, which mm -hmm. is about Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And now, just earlier this month, uh, we 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 were honoring you know Black Wall Street, um, but right. but I want to talk about specifically, you, one of your mission statements is to resurrect Black Wall Street. Right. What does this mean um, for people who may be unfamiliar with it and, and the rebuilding of Black Wall Street and what it looks like? What are the well what that what that what that looks like, you know, in in rebuilding Black Wall Street is the fact that uh, black businesses have a equal opportunity with access to capital and other resources. Uh, black businesses have been deprived of capital. Uh, black businesses don't get the investments that other white okay, companies get. Uh, black uh, entrepreneurs don't get the venture capital that the white counterparts get. And so the only way for us to grow as a community, which in turn builds other communities and things there, Black businesses have to have access to capital. And without capital, you, without that fuel, you know, it's very little that that one can do. And in addition to that, and having that, that capital and that fuel is having Black people to do business with Black people, okay? It's what that also is, a, it's, a, it's also a huge part of that, you know, there as well. But, but until such time that we can get access to capital, then it's all a dream deferred, all right? It's what it is because go back to the fact that we're using crowdfunding to bury, bury our loved ones. Right, we still <laughs> have this <laughs> immense <laughs> racial wealth gap to deal <laughs> so, so, with. So, so there's no money there, all right? I'm, I, I finished school and I've got uh, $200,000 in student loans, all right? <laughs> so there's no money there, all right? And when you look at the cost of housing, when you mentioned housing, look at, look at the cost of housing and living today you know, rent, you know, trying to purchase off the charts and those things. So, so, so when I get out of school, when I graduate from college and, and I'm making 150,000 or $200,000 a year. And when I look at my, based on my locale, when I start to take out those basic necessities to breathe, i.e. rent, home, home, car, you know, <laughs> all of these things, there's nothing left to invest in a company. Nothing. To do it. So the only way that one can do that, just like on the, the white counterparts, is the fact that I've got a great idea. And now I go and pitch that idea. And I get funding for it. <laughs> and when I get funding for it, and I can grow that and, and around these white companies, when they fund it, they also bring an ecosystem around them. Here's the legal, here's the law firm, here's the accounting firm. Here's the technology firm that you use. So they bring this and here's board members. You know, he's, they can go and, and get you contacts with customer contacts and things. And so now we can go about building this company so that now this become a unicorn. And next thing you know, now we're sitting on, uh, sitting on a public market IPO. Think about the wealth that that creates. Think about that for a moment. Think about the wealth that that 
that that creates from the standpoint of having black companies go public, hiring people of color, locating in these communities where these communities now can have training, access to these positions that's gonna give them the experience and the expertise to build wealth and then flourish out through the rest of the world. Again, this is not cracking atoms. This is simple. This mm -hmm. is very, very simple. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an immense opportunity, but to, to get there, you absolutely need capital. And so this is as relevant as ever. And everything that you're saying, you know, I hear it for the Latino community as well, but I think because the black community has, because of the, it's been a hundred years since the burning of black wall street. And because it has been a long time coming for the black community, it's ever most critical for, for, for this community to be supported in this community to get there because it has been a long time coming and because there are already the like the, the strides that I'm seeing within the black community to invest in each other all of this that you're saying is is by far the most advanced that I've right. seen of any of any group that's in this position right, right. so to, to be able to have that I think is absolutely critical and important just for the progress of the entire country. Um, so Roosevelt, I've learned so much today, thank you so much for for sharing all of your expertise your time your experience. And I'm really looking forward to sharing this with our followers so that we can all learn um, about how truly, I mean, the success of, of the Black community and the success of our country really hinges on making sure that all of our communities are able to um, economically rise together. Mm -hmm.